0: We're in our series in Mark's Gospel. I hope you've got your little Mark's Gospel. If you haven't, if you wave your hand, some of the guys, Andy's at the back there. If you need one, if you wave, you'll get one. But I wanted everybody to have one this morning because um, here's some over here, Andy. There's one, one there, one at the front as well, two at the front. They're outside, they're they're coming, they're coming, give Andy a wee buzz, or we were going to say give him a buzz there, but don't need your windows cleaned or anything, you're all right. Um, I I was officiating at a wedding yesterday, and uh, one over here, Andy at the back, two at the back, and two up at the front here, two here, Laurie and, and Dixie, John, Thanks. Great, just important you have it because we're going to read a little bit and I, I'm going to take in the passage this morning. I was officiating at a wedding yesterday and um, we were on our way, Laurie and I were on our way through Eglish and we were going over speed bumps and I said to Laurie, speed bumps. I said, remind me about speed bumps when we get home and she goes sort of what what's fell on about now um, was the sort of feeling in the car and... Um, and I thought speed bumps are something really important actually because what they tell us is number one, they tell us to slow down. And number two, they tell us that something more important is going on in the area that you need to take note of. And um, I began to think of speed bumps in the Bible. There's the Bible's full of speed bumps, there are little passages and little things in the scripture that 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 should create us to slow down and take note of what's going on around. And hence, I struggle a little bit with some, I've I've said this to you before, you know, I love reading the Bible, but if you just read it as a habit, you know, so uh, how many of you have done this? How many of you go to do your reading, and you, you look over to see how long the chapter is? Anybody ever done that? Come on, admit it. We've all done it, haven't we? And we think, oh no, it's four columns. You know, oh, it's a wee short one this morning. Um, And so, and it's good to read the Bible. It is good to read it. And it's good even, some people say, well, I just think I'm reading out of habit. I always say it was a pretty good habit. You have a whole lot of bad ones, so keep the good ones, all right? So it's good to read it, but sometimes it's important. Sometimes less is more. And it's important to look out for the little speed bumps where you think, oh, wow. So for instance, in our passage this morning, we're going to read the word never. God will never forgive you. Now, whenever I say never, so if I say to Daniel, you're never playing that, that PlayStation again, he knows rightly. That's going to last about an hour, if even. If you say you're never going to do that again to your child, our nevers ne- really are never. When God says never is a different thing. When God says never in a passage, we need to figure out why would he say such a thing. So it's really important that we understand these little speed bumps. So if you turn... To page, um, I'll go on to the light. On the light's not good up here. Um, page 14. I'm all right, I'm all right. Page 14, um, and we're going to see this little passage here, all right? Um, we're going to read from verse 20, right down at the bottom left-hand column of page 14, all right? Jesus went back home. It says, Jesus and the ruler of demons, see this? Jesus went back home. And once again, such a large crowd gathered that there was no chance even to eat. Anybody ever been so busy that they've missed their tea or missed their lunch to have been so busy to eat? Well, here's what happened to Jesus and the disciples. There was no chance even to eat, all right? When Jesus' family heard what he was doing, they thought he was mad. And he went, they went to get him under control. Now, they're not, they're not um, this isn't, They're just worried about him. They're concerned, as we'll see in a moment or two, about him. So some teachers of the law of Moses came from Jerusalem and said, This man is under the power of Beelzebub. So his family's saying he's lost the plot. The rulers and the leaders are saying he's under the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. He's forcing out demons with the help of Beelzebub. Then Jesus told the people to gather around him, and he spoke to them in riddles and said, How can Satan force himself out? A nation um, whose people fight each other won't last very long, and a family that fights won't last long either. So if Satan fights against himself, that will be the end of him. How can anyone break into a house of a strong man and steal his things unless he first ties up the strong man? Um, Then he can take everything. I promise you that any of the sinful things that you say, or do can be forgiven no matter how terrible these things are. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you can never, is the word, be forgiven. That sin will be held against you forever. Jesus said this. Now, it's going to tell us the reason why He said it. It says, Jesus said this because the people were saying that He had an evil spirit. So, that's what caused them to say what He said, all right? Um, Jesus' mother and brother seems to be the same some theologians reckon this is maybe a different time, but it seems to be the same story. They arrive at the beginning of the story. Now here they are back at the, the back end, the other end of the bookmark, as it were. Then uh, Jesus' mother and brother um, came and stood outside, and they sent someone with a message for him to come out to them. The crowd that was sitting around Jesus told them, "'Your mother, your brothers and sisters are outside and want to see you.'" Jesus asked, "'Who is my mother?' who is my brothers? Um, Then he looked at the people sitting around him and said, here is my mother, my brothers. Anyone who bears God is my brother or sister or mother. All right? It's a big passage, all right? And I'm trying to get you this morning, Can 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 I say at the very outset, I'm preaching this with a little bit of awe this morning. I, I, I felt as I delved into Scripture again this week that I, I stand in awe. I don't teach Scripture glibly. I don't teach it flippantly. One day I'll stand before God and give an account, so I am careful about what I say, all right? So, I don't often preach opinions. You know that. I suggest. I give you suggestions for you to go home rather than take my opinions because it's important that we preach the Word, and so I'm preaching this this morning not to create guilt or condemnation. Please hear this. Out of the heart of what I preach, it is to create righteousness and holiness. So it's not a message to create guilt, to go home beating yourself up, all right? It's a, it's a message to raise the standard in your life, as, it, as, as in mine, to raise the standard of holiness, to raise the standard of Righteousness, because that's what God is calling us to today. So, what we're going to do, we're going to try and tackle four questions this morning, as you'll see on the screen. Is there a non forgivable sin? That's the the first and foremost question. Is there a sin that you can commit once and thereby ruin any chance ever of having salvation? Can you commit that sin today? Is that available for you today to commit? Some of the, the way I grew up, the, in the brethren, they would have taught that this was a, they're taught that we live in the dispensation of grace. Now, it's a, an old philosophy, and I don't, probably, in my opinion, if you want it, um, I would suggest to you that it, well, I don't believe in dispensationalism. That's probably the easiest way to say it. But they believe, because this is Mark 3, it's pre cross. Many, not just brethren, now many movements believe this. It's pre-cross, so Jesus is making this statement before the cross, and before the cross, um, and then, of course, when the Antichrist comes, the same thing will happen. They'll say, they'll, when, 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 the, when the Antichrist works in post-rapture, what they'll say was, oh, it's Jesus. So, they're attributing the works of the devil to Jesus, and here they're attributing the works of Jesus to the devil. And the many, many theologians will tell you that's the unforgivable sin, and it can only be committed pre-cross and post rapture that it can't be committed in the day of grace in which we live. I'm, I'm going to hazard a statement to you that I don't believe that's fully true, and I'll teach you why in a moment or two. Um, And then, um, could you have committed it unknowingly? Could you have committed this? Is there some worry? I had somebody came to me last Sunday morning or last Sunday evening and said, um, could I have committed the unforgivable sin? Could I, I keep feeling that I, maybe sometime in my distant Childhood, or in my past um, reckless days, I've committed this unforgivable sin that one day I'll stand before God and God will say, I don't know you because you made this error of judgment or this unforgivable sin. Um, I want to attempt to put that to rest because that seems you need to know that the unforgivable sin is a, winf, a willful act of rebellion. And it, it'll unfold out more in a moment. It's a willful act of rebellion. It's not something you could. You could have done unknowingly, all right. So just to put your mind at rest, without, and I could prove that to you from a myriad of scriptures, all right. And then, um, lastly, we're going to answer this question: How should I live in light of the truth? If we, if this unforgivable sin can be committed today, how should I live my life in the knowledge of that? All right. Okay. Speed bump. All right. So let's slow down. Let's slow down and take a look at this interesting text. Not fly over the speed bump and. Um, and not take care of what it's uh, telling us to slow down for or wreck your car in the process, all right? Here's the verse. Um, this is the way the NIV puts it. Whosoever bl- blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, actually goes on, preludes to that. If you blaspheme against the Father, it could be forgiven. If you blaspheme against the Son, it could be forgiven. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiven us, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, this verse, again, I say, has bothered many Christians wondering if they've done it. Let me state right now that nothing in your distant past can have an impact on whether you can be saved right now or not, all right? And I'll qualify that in a moment. Here's one verse that qualifies it right in the passage, verse 35. Whoever does the will of God is my brother or my sister or my mother. What he's saying here is he's, he's saying... Whoever does the will of God can be part of my intimate family, all right, part of the family of God, and could such a person be lost eternally? And so hence comes this idea of saved and lost, and a lot of Pentecostal teaching today will teach that you can be be saved and lost, that there's no such thing as eternal salvation, and I don't agree with that at all. And again I will tell you why in a moment or two. So my answer to the first question is yes, there is an unforgivable sin. There is a an unfor a sin that one can commit that would block them out of heaven for all of eternity. I believe that with all of my heart. The confusion that arises around verse 29 of Mark 3 arises when people rip it out of context. Now, if you're a Bible study or you enjoy reading the Bible or studying the Bible remember this little statement every text has got a context all right that's why I teach you about therefore you've all heard me say this when you find the word therefore what do you do you look and see what it's therefore all right because it's a hinge word all right so when you read um, Hebrews chapter 11 and you read all the great heroes of faith, And then you read in the last section of that chapter of people who died not receiving the promise. Some were sawn asunder while they were still alive and all of this. And he said, these people all died in faith. That's what it says at the end of chapter 11 of Hebrews. And then guess what the first word of chapter 12 is? Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded with such a vast crowd of witnesses. What's he talking about? He's talking about all these people that he's talked about in chapter 11 and all of your loved ones who have went on before you. He's saying, therefore, because you're surrounded with such a great crowd of witnesses, let us press forward. He says, this should encourage you, this should spur you on to know that there are those that have went before you, that have have laid hold of this, that are now in glory. He's saying, this should spur you on to to lay lay aside every weight and press forward towards the mark of the high calling. And so, um, I, I don't know what took me into Hebrews, but there you go. So, Basically, what, what we're doing here, um, what we want to do is we want to see that every tax has got a context. And so, I said to you, verse 30 was the reason he said, verse 29, he said, he said this, he said this very thing here because, the reason he said this was because they said he has a devil. This is why he said it, Okay. Now, this points us back to verse 22. If you looked at that in your books, the scribes came down from Jerusalem. They said he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. So we must look at this entire sort of passage. So let's get our sleeves rolled up with 20 minutes or thereabouts to do this. So let's get going, all right? Now, let me remind you, first of all, if you were to cast your eye back to Mark chapter 2 and into the beginning of Mark chapter 3, you would see that Mark is is, is, is giving us a, an escalating rise of, of conflict between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 12 of Mark 2 tells us a story of the paralytic that Tara preached about last Sunday night, and you know the story: the the guys came, they climb up the steps at the side of the house, they tear the roof off, and they set this guy down because they can't get through the doors or windows because the house is so full, and they let this guy down through the roof in front of Jesus. As soon as he arrives down in front of Jesus, it says he saw their faith. I always think that's an interesting passage. How do you see faith? Faith is tangible, real faith. You can see it, you see it at work. He saw their faith. And then it says this, he says, son, your sins be forgiven you. Now, you can imagine that was like waving a red flag to a bull, all right? And I'm thinking if I was a scribe or Pharisee, it would have agitated me as well, because they said, and rightfully so, they said, "Who, who does he think he is? He's forgiven sins. No one has the right to forgive sins, only God. That's true. And then Jesus says this, Jesus says, interesting to read this, he, he says, um, he claims his divinity when he replies, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. <laughs> this me isn't you? Know, we, we lay everything around healing, don't we? And I believe in healing, I do. And I will pray for healing to the dead. Jesus takes me home. But we lay everything around it. But Jesus actually says here, it's secondary. <laughs> Jesus says the forgiveness of sins is actually the most important thing. But he says, "Because you people don't believe me, in order that you might believe that I am God and I have the authority to forgive sins, he says, "What is the easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins will be forgiven you or to rise up, take up your bed and walk. Of course we all know the easiest thing to say is your sins will be forgiven you, because nobody can see whether that's right or wrong. So Jesus tries a hard thing, and he says, "Son, up you get." Rise up. And so here's the guy, and if you want a good little pun, here's a guy who came in with his head in the bed and he went with the bed in the head. All right? Comes in with his head in the bed and he goes out with his bed on his head. He gets up and he takes his bed and he marches out of the house. Now you can imagine what's happening here. You can imagine this, this whole rivalry, and, and, and this doesn't quash the, 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 the scribes and Pharisees at all. This just agitates them more. And then, if you go to verse 13 to 17 of chapter 2, you'll find, um, you'll find him actually uh, calling... Another disciple, he calls a disciple called Levi, or who we know to be Matthew. And Matthew is—he's really excited about this. He gets and he—he he calls a party. You can read this in verses thirteen to seventeen. He calls a bit of a party. Now the problem is, the problem is because he's a tax collector, nobody else wants to go to his party. Only tax collectors and sinners, oh, and of course Jesus—he's there as well. And and. And so Jesus is eating with these people. And in verse 15, you'll see the, the scribes and Pharisees now are more offended. And they're saying, how can this be? How can it be a supposed man of God, eat and interact with scum? And um, Jesus responds in a way, in a very powerful way. He says that a doctor, you know, well, people don't need to go to a physician. And he says, "I didn't come, I didn't come for the righteous people. He says, I came for the sinners love that beautiful little passage and then chapter 3 begins with a huge controversy chapter 3 he's in church where he should be on sunday morning sabbath it was then and there's a man with a deformed hand and this man's hand has been deformed for a long time probably born like that and and jesus spies this man with a deformed hand and he says to the guy stretch out your hand i love that little phrase all right because remember when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And there might be something this morning that God's saying, I need you to stretch out because if you don't stretch it out, I can't fix it. And so if this man held his hand in here and said, you're not getting to my hand, I don't even want you to see it. I'm embarrassed about this hand. Jesus could never have touched it, but he said, stretch out. And the man puts his little deformed hand out and Jesus heals his hand. And, and makes it whole. And of course, the Pharisees inscribed, this is the Sabbath day. They're up and, oh, dear, this is awful. And actually, verse 6 of that passage, you'll see the Pharisees, if you look at it, the Pharisees and the Herodians came together. They were arch enemies. They didn't even like each other. But their so, they're hatred right now is so much for Jesus. They're joining ranks and, and sort of plotting and planning on the Sabbath day, mind you, to actually destroy Jesus. Verse 6, chapter 3. So that's sort of the context of the, the story that we're in today. And 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 so this agitation is all there. And so there's two major themes in the section leading up to this passage today. And the first one is that true religion is found in a joyous relationship with Jesus Christ. And this relationship is available to those who will humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and acknowledge their spiritual authority. Now then the crowds start coming. Of course, this is all attracting crowds, and you can see this whole thing. You know, the crowds are coming large. If you look in verse, um, page 13, you'll see up on the right-hand column there, large crowds come to Jesus. So people are now coming um, flat out because Jesus, this miracle man, is, is very powerful. Now here's a little theology, that, if that's the right word, or a little idea that's important for you to notice. All right? Um, uh, life is traveled as we know and so life's a bit of a journey and we're all heading on life and in life you'll meet loads of people um, I hope you're, you're, if you're a believer in here if you don't know Jesus Christ you, I'd love you to find him today I'd love you to repent of your sins and make him your saviour and lord it'd be the most incredible thing because your relationship with this one is the most key relationship of everything Jesus then had three and then he had 12, and then there was 72. And of course, now we have this crowd coming to him. So, so, so church theology today is how many people... So I, I had lunch with a minister from Belfast on Thursday, and he said to me, how many are you getting there on a Sunday morning? <laughs> you see, because we judge our success on, on the numbers. How many came? How many is how in church today? How many? You know, And that's a big question. All right, and and so all all our all our theology around this in church planting, and so I see it all the time. How do you break the one hundred barrier? How do you break the five hundred barrier? How do you break the thousand? Does my nothing? Um, but um, I I go to the, I don't go to them anymore. I used to go to seminars I like got, and then just come home depressed and angry, and thought, no, that definitely couldn't be God. And so the idea is that the idea is that we we judge all our. All our life going this way, making, trying to gain a crowd. But whenever I read the New Testament, actually I find Jesus was always going this way. Jesus was actually always going contrary. He was always trying to get away from the crowd. He was always hiding. He actually said, when he he healed somebody, he said, Now, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody I cast those demons out of you. Keep it yourself. And he's. And he's always trying to get away. As a matter of fact, in the very first chapter of Mark, we find him here because continually he reverts to the twelve. Continually he spends with the three. And continually he has this vital, important relationship because here he realizes this is what builds real church. (laughs) It's not the crowd that builds real church, you see. It's your relationship with one. And the relationship with one is of such utter and vital importance. And so um, uh, I, I think Jesus could have done this. He could have come to church today and, 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 and all your sicknesses will be healed. And if you have one leg shorter than the other, that'll grow. And, and, and your cancers will all be shriveled up. And I and, know, and, and oh yes. And, and just before the end of the service, I'm going to jump off a pinnacle. And, and the angels are going to catch me. And you're going to really know it's me. He could have done all that. As a matter of fact, Satan actually tempted him to do it. (laughs) But he he chose a different way. And so there's this idea of of intimate family. And so what we're reading here is Jesus is actually choosing. You see, what happened when Jesus was crucified? The crowd who who threw their their shirts and their their palm leaves and said, Hosanna uh, uh, to the king as he rides in on his little donkey. Actually, in just a few hours, says, "Crucify him, we will not have this man to reign over us. So the crowd's fickle and and, and the seventy two all scattered in some shape or form, and the twelve even he came to the twelve and he said, "Will you go also?" And they said, "Well, where would we go? Because you have the words of eternal life, but it was a bit it was a bit flippant as well because they all did go, and actually um By the time he got to, from Gethsemane into Pilate's judgment hall, um, we know the story. Peter was there and denied him three times, third time with oaths and swearings and curses to prove that he wasn't one of them. So, when Jesus left earth, of course, he had rekindled on the banks of Galilee, his 12, and he left earth having inspired and influenced 12 people in such a way that they would turn the world upside down, which is so powerful. So, he's choosing his intimate family here, which is really important, and, and, and his family are, are starting to Get a little bit freaked out at what's going on, and so that's sort of what bookending the whole. I put it on the screen here. There's sort of the what what we read here. These sort of two passages, twenty to twenty one, uh, and then thirty one to thirty five, are like two bookends to this amazing blasphemy against the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit passage. So they're they're worried about his self care. They're thinking now when it, in the, when the Bible our modern references say he went mad, what they were saying well he's not himself. See see. It's only a few weeks ago he was brushing the floor of the of the of the carpenter's shop. It's only a few weeks ago he was he was kneeling on those boards and and he was and he was and he was caring for his family. And now remember we talked about he parked the brush and he he walked the thirteen miles and he went into the sea, into the river Jordan, he got baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him. See that none of none of these people saw that. None of these people saw the mantle and the power and the, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming and resting and abiding. They didn't understand it, so they're worried about him. He's not himself. You ever said that about somebody you love? He just He's not himself. You know, and he, like he, left, he left, and he, the brush is where he parked it, and, and, and I know his younger brother's now looking after the shop, but like, he's just not himself. And they're worried about him, you see. So, so there's something here that, that is really important. And 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 maybe, as I say, this this prophetic mantle that was upon him just wasn't understood by his family. And then at the end of the passage, this mark, the thirty-one to thirty-five, you've you've them coming to the house and Jesus saying, "Who is my mother? Who is my brothers? Who are my sisters?" and and and, and it's a very powerful thing. And, it, and, and when you read that, let's not misread it. Not, let's not think that he, was, he didn't really care about his mother and his brother and his sisters. I think that couldn't be further from the truth. I imagine, I imagine when he handed over, he handed over to one of his younger brothers the, the rule of the shop. I imagine he did that. When he hung on the cross, I don't need to imagine this because Scripture tells us, when he hung on the cross in his dying breaths... When he's in agony, more agony than anybody who has ever lived. Moments before his last gasps, he organizes the arrangements to have his mum looked after by his beloved John. And he says, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. So let's not misread it. He's saying something more profound and deeper than that. He's saying that he acknowledges that there is more than just physical bloodlines. This is important to hear as a church family. He's saying there's more than just physical bloodlines. When we seek Christ for salvation, we acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We are covered by his blood. But more than covered by his blood, we we it's more than that. We become part of a new bloodline, a royal bloodline. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, runs in our veins. We become part of a new family. That's why it's important that I look after my family. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a grandfather. And it's important. The Bible says that a man that doesn't look after his family is worse than an infidel. I'm not 100% sure what that is, but I don't fancy being one. And... um, um, so, so, uh, so there's something about looking after your family, but there's also something about it, using it as an excuse to not look after your brother and your sister. And I've heard it far too often, Use oh, no, 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 I can't do that tonight because it's our movie night. Now, I'm all on for movie nights. Please, I'm not, please hear me in this, you know, but it, sometimes, sometimes, and if, if it's a movie night, do it. I love movie nights, all right? But let's not use it as an excuse just to not look after our brothers and our sisters because whether you like it or not, you are my brother, you are my sister, you are my father, you are my mother, and vice versa. And so we have a responsibility to each other. And that's why... This here and this here is of vital importance as we come to September especially. We're going to really push the threes and twelves because there is something about meeting in a three or a twelve. There's something about meeting with two or three people where you can bring challenge into your life and say, how is your relationship with God? How's your quad times going? Oh, they're not that great. How can I help you? How can I, at, I meet with, some, with, with three local ministers once a month. We do exactly this. Now, we're not a three, we're a four. But we meet and we challenge one another We call it our soul-keeping time. How's your soul? How's your time with God? How's your time with your wife? How's your time with your family? How's the boundaries in your ministry? And so it's really important that we understand how to actually look after one another. So, not only do his family get concerned about him, but the scribes and Pharisees, they're accusing him of this demon possession, and, and, and they accuse accusing of casting out demons in the name of Beelze, but we're having time to look at that. And they believe that Jesus is practicing some kind of satanic magic, and, and, and all of this this sort of… It was used actually in the early church for anti-Christian persecution because this sort of went on and on and on. But Jesus retorts, he says in 23 to 27 of the passage, how can Satan drive out Satan? Jesus came to bind Satan so that he might spoil Satan's house. He says, how can somebody take the goods out of a house? If a strong man lives in the house, they're going to go in, they're going to get attacked by the strong man. He said, before you actually do take his goods, Before you plunder his house, you've got to go in and you've got to bind a strong man. And then when you bind a strong man, you can go in and take whatever you want. And That's why it's really important when it comes to spiritual warfare, that it's not just some willy-nilly thing that we do because we think it's a fancy prayer or something we say. It's something that's very strategically done and shouldn't be done alone as we go into spiritual warfare because there's something about binding the strong man at work in a situation, all right? Having time to teach you on that this morning, but it is a very powerful teaching, and we've 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 went on it before. So, so the problem is the problem is if Satan is casting out Satan, he said that the house divided against itself couldn't stand. So, that's the nonsense what you're talking, and 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 so with this idea, um, with this idea that 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 Jesus is under making them understand a little bit of what they're coming against, all right now. The thing about this is, in context to the unforgivable sin, it was quite a Jewish belief at the time. They believed in unforgivable sins. They just never really knew what they were. So it almost feels like Jesus is saying a little bit, um, if, you know, he said to them, you leaders believe in the unforgivable sin. Well, here's what it is. Here's what it is. He says, it's a persistent rejection of Jesus. It is a persistent, ongoing rejection. Whoever blasphemes commits an eternal sin. And as long as anyone continues in that rejection, the condemnation continues. Now, here's some theologians that are a lot smarter than I that I think are important to take note of. Sproul, who I love, talks about this. He says, the unforgivable sin is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit by calling Jesus a devil after being lightened by the same Spirit. All right? Um, The famous reformer John Calvin put it this way. He said, we commit such sacrilege only when we knowingly endeavor to extinguish the Spirit. All right? Um, And St. Augustine put it this way. He said that um, it is on repentance that is blasphemy against the Spirit. All right, and then one that I really love, my favorite, is Matthew Henry. He says, "Those who fear they have committed this sin give a good sign that they have not." You see, the person who would have committed the unforgivable sin doesn't care. They have committed that willfully. They've decided against. They've saw all. They've saw all the the, the proof, and they've 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 seen it all. But they've decided against. They've decided to go this way, they've decided against. That's what the unforgivable sin is. Why is it the the sin of the Spirit against the Spirit? I'll explain it to you this way. If the Father provided for us a a redemption plan, which we know He did, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the beginning God, Elohim, God in plurality. But if God the Father is the sender, and He sends His Son to act out that redemption plan, so the redemption plan, you can imagine this, the redemption plan starts with the father and he gives it to the son who, who works out the redemption plan. He goes to Calvary. He utterly defeats the devil. And then, and then the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit is known as the treasurer. Now, Lenny's our treasurer. He's in Florida at the minute, so I can say this. You never, you never offend a treasurer. All right because He usually pays your wages, okay? And um, and so, the, the Holy Spirit is the treasurer. He's the administrator of all the plans. So, hence, He's saying, if you say something against the Father, it could be forgiven. If you say something against the Son, it could be forgiven. But you see, if you cut this one off, you're goosed, because you can't get anything from anybody, because it has to come through Him. It has to come through Him. And if we defy... The Holy Spirit, if we fly in the face of the Holy Spirit and we defy the Holy Spirit, we cut off the administration of all of heaven. That's why it's such a serious act. And so when someone looks and says, well, I understand all this thing about God, and God is love, and God won't condemn people. He is a, he is a God of love, and I don't believe in all that salvation business and all of that. We, we fly in the face of, of the work of Calvary. We fly in the, And then what we actually declare is we say, look, this Holy Spirit business, it's not for me. And the unique and special role of the Holy Spirit to apply the Father's plan and the Son's accomplishment into our lives cannot be, cannot be dismissed. This is so important. It's so important that we, we need to understand and we need to humble ourselves. Now, we want to finish in the next few minutes, but I want to, want to hit this question, all right? Is there an unforgivable sin? Yes, there is. Can it be committed today? Yes, it can. Um, Could I have committed it unknowingly? No, you couldn't. All right, so you need to get that out of your mind. All right. Um, Number four, how should I live in light of this right now? How should I live in light of this right now? Well, that's a big question. And um, uh, none of us know None of us know the line of toying with sin where it becomes irrevocable. And somebody came up to me after the first service and and said to me about the saved and lost, and I said, I put it to them this way, when, when you study, you'll find that because I believe in eternal security, so I believe in once saved, always saved. That's what I believe, all right? If you don't believe that, no problem you're wrong. But, uh, no, Then, then, sorry. Um, um, if you don't believe that, I, I'm o- open for the discussion. I, I don't think you'll change my view on it. I've studied this for many, many, many years. And the number one thing, the first reason I believe in eternal security is I believe in eternal security because of the word eternal. What, what can be eternal about what you can lose? <laughs> It just rips the word eternal out of it for me. It rips the heart out of the message. I can't preach eternal life if it's not eternal. (laughs) I can't preach eternal life if it's up to you to keep it. I can only preach eternal life if it's up to the giver to keep it for me. (laughs) And the giver of eternal life is the one who saves and the one who keeps. But I do believe in inheritance. And And the Bible talks about Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he talks about people saved as by fire. That means you're in by the of your pants or in by the skinnier teeth. Now you say, Well, I'm in glory and I'm in heaven. That's fine. If you're okay with that, that's okay. But you know what I would hate? I would hate that you would get the glory and you would realize that God, you see, this is what I believe the judgment seat of Christ is all about. After the judgment seat, you're going to be happy and content with what you have. But at the judgment seat of Christ, it's a powerful place. That's a place where you're going to stand before God and give an account of every deed done in the body. Not my words, the Bible. Every deed done in the body. And it's almost like God will go through this list and He will and He will and He will look and He will and and that's where wood hands stubble. <laughs> he said, but I went to church every Sunday you know, and, and, and I did this, and I did that, and, 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 and God, God will go, well, that, that, that's gold, that, that little act you done was gold, but that there, that's just wood, head stubble, and, and you've got to figure out what's going to go through the fire, what's going to go through the flame, and I would hate to be at the judgment seat of Christ, and here's my little thought as we conclude, wouldn't it be awful to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and God to say, Phil, you see this here, see that room, See the size of that room? That's a storehouse, man. That's 10,000 square foot. Huh. Wow, that's a big store. You see all that stuff in there? That was all yours. There were gifts for you. That was Ephesians 2.10. That was all the four plans for you to walk in. But you missed it. That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, I'm in heaven. But... Your inheritance is going to have to give it to another. <sighs> I'm going to have to give that to another. You say, I'm going to have to give that to the one with five talents and the one with two talents. And I, I know after that moment, I'm going to be okay. But I dread that moment. And I'd hate to meet you somewhere in glory because we'll know each other. I, I believe that with all my heart. And you just say to me, Phil, you never, you never preached that faithfully. We were never told that this mattered. And and it matters. Your inheritance matters. And I could prove it to you from many, many scriptures. Genesis 22 is my favorite, where, where, where God says, don't lay your hand on the lad, Abram, for now I know. And my life's been full of little now I know moments. And if I had been If I hadn't realized there were speed bumps, I'd have sped over them and I would have missed what was going on around them. And so I'm saying to you, be aware of the speed bumps. Be aware of the little things. Be aware of how you live. And again, this message is not to create guilt and condemnation. This message is to create righteousness and holiness. I've been a Christian a long time. I got saved when I was six. I'm 60 this year. And so you can do the mass. And I can tell you this year, has been one of the most solemn years that I've lived. This year, I've felt more than any other year in my life, God, God, do little things like this. Not anymore, Phil, sorry. Can't do that anymore, Phil. Laurie and I have worked through some of this together as a, as a couple where we're saying, God's calling us up a standard, up a level, up where, and, and it's, it's not easy, and it's hard, But is it it worth it? Oh, man. A million times over. There's something about righteousness and holiness that God is calling to us. Gary, do you want to come? We'll finish with a song. There's something about righteousness and holiness that God is calling us to. Here's a great verse. If you get your verse of the day, this is it today. All right? Um, And it's a very powerful one. You're the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. (laughs) Chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do His work and to speak out for Him, to tell others of the night and day difference He made in you, from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. John, when he writes his little epistle at the end of the Bible, he talks about this. John has outlived all of the other apostles by 40, 45 years. He's in his 90s. He's exiled on the island of Patmos. They've boiled him in oil. They've tried to kill him several times. He's still alive. He takes his pen, and he writes against the Gnostics who said you could live any way you want. <laughs> That's why his little epistle is black and white. He talks about light, darkness. You know, it says sin is lawlessness. He talks about life and death. He's into this parallelism because he's he's fighting against a... a, a a sneaky doctrine that had crept into the church 50, 60 years after Christ. Hmm. And the, the, the philosophy of the Gnostics was, you can be a Christian and live whatever way you want. And, and, and it's, it's, it's been seeping through the last 2,000 years. And John writes, takes his little pen, and here's what he writes in First John 2, one: he says, My little children, I write to you that you do not sin. He says, I write to you that you do not sin. When a 95-year-old man writes to me personally and saying, I write to you, Phil, I write to you, little children, that you do not sin. I take that very, very seriously. And then he says this. I love that he says this. He says, but if you sin, <laughs> if you sin, one of the new modern versions says, when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We always put the righteous one in there, but the Bible doesn't say one. It says, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love that. Jesus Christ the righteous. That's his title. And so this message this morning is not to create guilt and condemnation, again I say, but it's to create a level, a fresh level of righteousness and holiness to say, God, you know what? today is a new mark in my life. Today is a new point. Today is a moving forward. Today is a rising. Today, God, I'm not going to do what I did yesterday. And God, God, help me. Those habitual things that creep in, God, help me. Will you help me deal with them? Help me by your Holy Spirit. Help me not to cut off the administrator of all that God has for me. And let's live in the, in the joy of righteousness together. Forgive me if it's been heavy. I've tried to preach it with love and with honor, and um, but I have to preach it with righteousness and truth. And so let's stand, we'll worship, and then I'll pray, and our meeting's over. Some of our worship teams at the back, down and right behind the boards, if you if there's something, can I say this, just even as we worship, you might want to nip out and get some prayer down there. If there's something niggling at you, if it's an old habit, because... Old habits die hard and the enemy loves to to pull back at old things, depressions and all kinds of things to try and pull you back, the bungee run, you know, where you get so far and then boom 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 back you go. And if that's you. I'd love you just to nip out to the back now and say to our prayer ministry, guys, would you would you would you pray for me? Would you would you help me? Would you would you just lay hands on me and, and pray for me as we worship? Let's do that. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.